Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about tribes, social movements, and culture brands. For as long as there have been humans, we have obsessed with the power and potential of the group. Now, more than ever before, smart leaders must know how to harness their own storytelling and tribe-building potential to create something meaningful. Phil Noseworthy is a researcher, keynote speaker, and co-founder of Switch Learning and Development. He works alongside brands like Microsoft, Universal Music, and ING as a speaker, facilitator, and social impact strategist, and has been described as the meaning maker, a unique professional who creates new paths for the next generation of leaders and entrepreneurs. Tribes, movements, and cult brands, lessons on creating something that matters. A Florence Guild conversation with Phil Noseworthy. Well, hello guys, how are you? Good, are you ready for a conversation? I mean, because I'm sitting on this stool at the front, um, but there's nothing worse than a lunchtime presentation. I mean, I'm going to put you guys on the spot a couple of times, and so you're going to have to be ready. I mean, so sandwiches quick, because then we'll have a conversation if you guys are okay with that. Now, our time um, together today is going to run for about 15 minutes, um, but I think if we use that for a conversation, 15 plus maybe half a dozen or a dozen for conversation, that would be a really useful investment of time. So I've been asked to share a couple of thoughts in regards to uh, tribes, movements and cult brands, which I think is a really interesting one right now. Um, the idea of tribes and movements, that's not a new conversation. Not even a little bit. I mean, as long as there have been people, people have been getting together in groups. And the reason being is that identity uh, is by and large built in social networks. Would you agree? Yes or no? Um, I, our identity is formed um, in and through and because of the groups that we are aligned to. And sometimes that's quite problematic. And we've seen this around the world recently is that one of the failures of the way that we work out who we are is, and we're gonna jump straight into some pretty deep psychology, is based on two notions. One's called association and one is called disassociation. So at risk of wading into some dangerous territory in the second minute, um, I know, for example, that I'm a boy um, because I associate with boys. Does that make sense? But I also know that I'm a boy because I'm not a girl. And those association and disassociation Oh my goodness, you could see how people get very confused about those kinds of things at the moment. Would you agree, yes or no? Some people are quite, you know, uh, harried about working out who they are. But regardless, movements and tribes and being part of something is as human a conversation as we could possibly get. So I think it's a useful one for us to be having right now. It is a little bit different though than in times past. Um, we live in an, uh, an age, 2017, we live in an age where trust in brands is declining. 
And you guys have seen the research and the studies and the conversations around the fact that people are a little bit more savvy in regards to the organizations that they get involved with or the brands that they buy from because they consider that a vote for the brand. Now here in Australia, we're pretty privileged to have a democratic conversation and we get to have our say on certain things but even then it's a hard conversation to have and at most we get to like chip into a conversation every couple of years but more and more consumers are looking at the organizations that they buy from as the opportunity to vote what they stand for every single time they buy. So every single time people engage with a brand, they can see that as something that affirms their identity and something where they find themselves in. So we're in an era of declining trust, which is a pretty obvious one. Political leadership isn't what it used to be. Um, and you know, just from a statistical perspective, um, not as many people are going to church, mosque, synagogue or temple not as many as have been in the past. So more and more people are looking for other ways to find groups to belong to because that's where they get identity from. And more and more there is opportunity for organizations, and we're talking about brands here, to step into a void. This is why you see people getting passionate about brands, where in times past, products and services were exactly that. It was an opportunity for people to like buy stuff from you. But now that's just the tip of the iceberg in regards to buying into a bigger <laughs> conversation about what that brand stands for, what it represents and how you can find yourself there. So here's the first opportunity for a conversation. What I'd love for you to do, um, and Rita, I reckon you're going to join in on this conversation as well. Um, do me a favor, turn to the person next to you. And when you think about organizations and brands who have gone beyond just what their product or their service represents? Who are the cult brands and who are the organizations that are having a play at building a movement at the moment? Then we'll get into a conversation about some of the insights around it and some of the methodologies for how you do that. So I'm gonna ask those two questions again. The first question is, what are some of the world's cult brands at the moment? What are the brands that people love to associate with and identify with? And what other movements are out there right now? I might give you two minutes for the chit chat. Like All right guys, can I get you back in? So this is, this is the conversational nature of it. So presentation, yes. I'm gonna give you some stuff and what I'd actually love uh, for you to do is have something to take some notes on, if that makes sense. Um, so learning theorists suggest that you're probably good for about seven new ideas in a day. Um, and look, it's already one o'clock, so chances are you've burned through a couple of those daily slots for new knowledge. And I've got kind of five ideas for you that I think would bear some fruit over time if you wrote them down and just they kind of percolated in the background. But before we get to that, that's just some buffering. Um, guys over on the couch, hello. Can I, may I ask, what did you guys talk about? Cult brands, movements that exist right now? And they're almost two parts of a similar conversation, but they are different. What did you guys talk about? Ah, amazing. So we were talking about Tesla and obviously Elon Musk. It's hard to have a conversation about Tesla without having a conversation of Elon Musk. Most people buy into the brand for both reasons. Would you agree? And for everybody that buys into that brand, they love the conversation of space and SpaceX and exploration. I. Uh, have visions of the future. I've got an 18-month-old daughter, her name is Xander, but I am convinced that she's gonna grow up in a world in 30 years time where there's a 100-foot statue made out of bronze of Elon Musk pointing to the stars out of San Francisco. But he's quite an extraordinary leader right now. Uh, we also talked about Apple. 
as a cult brand. You've probably seen the studies. We're going to scratch the surface on a couple of these things today. Mm -hmm. But McKinsey and Co. Um, did a comparative analysis on some organizations and what are the, the hallmarks of a cult. And you know, my shorthand of what a cult is, um, is where people have bought into the instructions of the leader before the leader has said anything. And you've seen this with an organization like Apple and Steve Jobs, and now to a lesser extent, but still from an organizational perspective with Tim, Tim Cook, people will line up around the block to get their hands on the next iPhone before they even know what the features are. Does that make sense? So it does register as a brand because people are bought into it before they even know what it is that they're getting. So that's an interesting one. What was the third one, would you remind us? And and TED Talks as a movement, the way that Chris Anderson, host curator of TED, has unleashed torrents of information. You know for a fact that TED, the original TED, was quite an exclusive enclave. But switching that on, there's not too many people with an internet connection who haven't watched a TED Talk in the last couple of years. So a movement for free knowledge is a, is a movement. So we've got, even in this kind of little bubble of conversation, we've got brands, we've got archetypal leaders of brands, and then we've got idea-based movements, which are probably some of the parts of the conversation that we'll explore. Hello, on the window surface, how are you? Can I ask you? Um, I'm picking on you because I think the surface is a killer device. Um, I really, really do. Um, what did you guys talk about and who did you talk with? Yeah. So that's an interesting one. I mean, LinkedIn as a platform for a movement of greater, is an interesting one. I've been thinking about personal branding as a movement, if that makes sense. Um, because you go back 10 or 15 years and personal branding was a new idea, wasn't it? And the fact that in the future, people will have to become brands themselves. Now you know for a fact that a personal brand, which is kind of like internet proof of life, is a starting point for a conversation with a lot of people. Have you had a conversation in business recently where somebody's, I don't know, reached out to you and you're like, oh, that's interesting. So you put their name into a search engine and you basically look for proof of life, whether they exist or not. Do you know what I'm talking about? And based on that search for proof of life, that's how you judge whether it's even worth having a coffee or a sit down. And as horrible as it sounds, a strong personal brand um, represents a greater movement in regards to we're getting into nerdy territory, but that taking on board of economic factors, if that makes sense. So people are treating themselves like micro economies with a need for productivity, efficiency, think about this, and even a personal brand. They're labels that you would only ever put on organizations in the past. The movement towards personal branding, that's a movement, absolutely. It's an idea that is in everybody's heads and it's becoming a structural reality. Gosh, this is nerdy fast, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, we'll pick, we'll pick the edges about this, but you can see that what we're not talking about is like cults, if that makes sense. You know, like people putting like a white turban on and disappearing into the Brazilian rainforest or things like that. Yes, that's the tip of the iceberg. But what we're seeing more and more is that in the way that people do life right now, um, there are the hallmarks of movements that are, are really obvious. Um, if organizations and their leaders can understand what those hallmarks are, they can also design for those hallmarks, does that make sense? And make it easier for people to be a part of what it is that they're building. I'm gonna jump into some content here, but we'll get to more questions in a tick. Um, two big bubbles of ideas, if that makes sense. So what I wanna talk about is basically two um, archetypal approaches um, to different movements. And then we're gonna talk about just three really simple ideas. 
obviously we're going to scratch the surface here, but this is where I'd like you to take notes. Two archetypal approaches. One, we call it, let's just call it the dragon slaying approach. The dragon slaying approach. Um, and the second one we'll call the missionary approach, if that makes sense. So anytime a movement is going to happen, um, Seth Godin would say, if you've ever read the book Tribes, which I think is a really simple and beautiful framework for this conversation, you're going to need three things. Number one, a strong leader. That's an interesting one. I want to put an asterisk on that because we'll come back into that in a moment. But a strong leader, um, two, an idea. Can everybody write that one down? And three, um, a group of people who buy into both the leader's vision and the idea itself. But given those three things, because they're pretty high level, wouldn't you agree? They're quite abstract because there's not too many organizations that you could look at in the world today and go, yeah, there's a leader, there's an idea, and there's kind of like a platform for connecting there. But more than that, movements have to happen. So this is where we get to these kind of two thoughts about dragon slaying um, or like a missionary approach. And dragon slaying is about what you stand against. Does that make sense? Strong movements at the moment if you scratch below the surface, you could probably find a position within that movement that the leader or the group of people that have gathered around an idea are standing against. So if we look for modern history, you could think about the black civil rights movement, which we'll use as an archetype in the United States. More recently, we could think about the um, Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, there was a very clear something that people were standing against. So in brackets next to dragon slaying, um, people want to like fight for something. Does that make sense? The missionary approach is slightly different. It's kind of like what you stand for. And they have slightly different time frames as well, where the dragon slaying approach um, is a little bit more urgent. Like it's a sense of we've got to hit the streets, we've got to make something happen because this is time bound and this is super urgent. The missionary approach is a little bit different because it's maybe a longer play where people will look for opportunities to spread that as regularly as they can. The success of the missionary approach is a strong platform. So a leader needs a platform in order to move a message, if that makes sense. So these two archetypal approaches, Seth Godin's three ideas, a leader, an idea, and a group of people all congregated around it. The dragon slaying approach, the missionary approach, remember we're scratching the surface here, but then what I wanna do is give you three kind of paradigms in regards to what needs to happen from a how do you do it perspective. For any movement that we've studied, whether it's religious, whether it's a, a personal identity movement, whether it's uh, a rights-based movement, which we're seeing in Australia right now, gratefully. Number one, something, an idea is being reframed. So if you're taking notes, can you write that word down? You've got to reframe it, which is really, really important. Because when you can reframe an idea, you can take a message and turn it into a movement. I'm just trying to like get things to like have a little bit of alliteration so it sticks next time around, right? So with a reframe, a message can become a movement. You think about the extraordinary work of Martin Luther King um, and the great cloud of witnesses in the 50s and 60s in regards to like moving that conversation on in the United States. Um, when that gained a lot of traction, it was the conversational shift, the reframe from this is about black civil rights to no, 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 this is about human rights. Does that make sense? Anytime you can reframe and move a conversation from me to we, that this is not just about a small group of people, this is about something that is fundamental 
to a lot of people. You can take a message that was specific for a small set of people and turn it into a movement. And this is obviously what we're just gonna try and scratch the surface on today. So the first one is reframe the conversation so that it moves out of just a, a small niche conversation. Now, when people wanna talk about what's the difference between a tribe and a movement, personally, I think the easiest idea to differentiate them is just scale. A tribe is inclusive, I should say exclusive. A movement is far more inclusive and that'll get us to the next point. So number one, reframe. Number two, mainline. Can you write down the word mainline? Which is just at some point an idea's gotta hit the mainstream. And this is the scariest moment for a lot of people if they are deliberately trying to create an idea that spreads and surpasses just a, a product or a service alone. Because you know that anytime an idea hits the mainstream, it's out of your hands and into the hands of anybody that is connecting with it. So it's a scary moment. But the mainline conversation is really, really, really important. The third, um, so we've got reframe, we've got mainline and the third principle or pillar before we just get back into conversation is play long. A movement doesn't happen overnight. And so if you're looking for like kind of brackets to remind yourself of what this idea is about, and write the words touch point and trigger, or I should say touch points and tipping points, if that makes sense. So if you think about um, the black civil rights movement, a lot of people go, oh, the March on Washington, oh my God, God, there were three million people who marched on Washington and made this such a loud conversation that politicians needed to make a decision. And I say, yes, that was the tipping point moment, but you know that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individual moments of bus boycotts, of people choosing to sit in the cafeteria, of people refusing to get to the back of the line, people using the bubbler that they needed to use. And so you've got touch points, the smaller regular things, and then you've got tipping points. The long play happens when all of those touch points turns into something much bigger, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So we're just getting into some historical movements right now, mm -hmm. but if you think about um, the spread of Christianity as an idea, that's like one guy out of modern Palestine who had 12 mates hanging around for a couple of years, <laughs> chatting about philosophy, right? And then maybe 30 or 40 years later, got a little bit of traction, but really 300 years later, when Emperor Constantine made it hit the mainstream by mandating it, that's when Christianity really, really took off. Some of the challenges that people have in regards to like kicking off a movement right now is the fact that we measure business success in quarterly iterations if that makes sense. And so people are confusing um, having followers for building something that matters, if that makes sense. I've got a client and a friend out of New York City. He has a clothing brand called uh, the Brooklyn Circus, which I think are really, really cool. American heritage clothing, if that makes sense. Think like Ralph Lauren, but a little bit more you know, edgy, the Brooklyn Circus. Ouija Theodore is the founder and owner of that. Um, that's actually his name. That's a cool name, right? Ouija Theodore. Um, but he has a 100-year plan, a 100-year plan. And I say, Ouija, but you're not going to be here. Why would you have a 100-year plan? Most people have like a five-year plan or a three-year plan or a plan on a page for the coming quarter. He's like, but it's going to take 100 years and I want this thing to stick around. 
So the third principle of a movement is the long play. How now I would love to switch our conversation is revisiting the first question. So looking at those things, this is why you needed to kind of write those down and hopefully somebody next to you has written them down as well. Now I'm wondering with the conversation and the time that we've got, it's only a short one, but turning back into those conversations, again, which brands do you think fit those hallmarks of a great leader, an idea, people that congregate around it? Are they a dragon slayer or are they missionaries? How have they reframed the conversation are they playing long? And what's our central pillar, Harley? Help me out with that one. Who took some notes there? What's, that? what's point number two for us? Mainlining. How have they hit the mainstream? How have they taken something that was exclusive and made it a conversation for everybody? So back over to you guys. Which brands now do you think really meet the criteria for building a movement? And this is also the point where you get to mix kind of like your own ideas with provocations, right? And so provocations are basically just like a statement with a question on the end, where you're just kind of going, kind of this, what do you think? Um, so feel free. What did you guys talk about? Tesla, yep. I mean, other people have been having a conversation about sustainability, though. I mean, you've got um, Prius, uh, you've got all sorts of vehicles that have been moving. You've got Nissan Leaf, who have been doing a good job. How has he done it so well? I think there's, a, there's an element in, which is kind of in the second touch point ah. about mainlining it and making yeah. it accessible, which yeah. I think is a bit more recent in the last probably six months or so. I love it. And I think that's probably opened his market yeah. and a lot more yeah. people are interested because now it's like, oh, actually, I could go and get that car versus, oh, that's for the rich people. I think this is a fantastic observation because it represents something that you can build an identity on. Um, if you're a Tesla person, and what that represents um, in the way that people used to be a Prius person. Some people still are, which um, ironically, you know, is a little bit of a misnomer because of the supply chain. You'll never earn the carbon emissions back on a Prius because of the way that they've constructed it. But a Tesla um, starts carbon free from the get go, which we really, really love. Um, there's a conversation here around mainlining, which is the tendency for marketers to go after the markets that they've already got. Does that make sense? Because um, you know for a fact the cost of new client acquisition compared to looking after the people that you've got and repeat business and so on and so on. Um, however, if all we ever do um, is feed the inclusive group, it will never be a movement. Does that make sense? So mainlining means being inclusive more than we are exclusive. Now, there's no judgment on whether it's like a niche brand, whether we're going after a movement, or whether movements happen by accident. Because personally, I think movements, the best ones, are ones that spread by wildfire, and the idea becomes bigger than the individual themselves. Does that make sense? Um, what about the third point? Like, how does Tesla and Elon Musk uh, align to that third? I, I, I don't know exactly what the vision or the mission the is, long but play. I, I know that there is that long play of yeah. it. 2050, you know, everyone's going to be driving an electronic car. Yeah. So it's a, it's a big, grand goal, which will take time. Very much. And you, you really do get the sense with Tesla and Musk that you're buying into the future of humanity. Would you agree? So I think the idea has transcended the individual as well. I agree. I think that's a really interesting take on it. Um, any kind of riffing or commentary on Tesla? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so just that point about it's become bigger than the leader because I don't know if you've read mm -hmm. the, the book on mm -hmm. Tesla and Musk and it doesn't paint a pretty picture of mm -hmm. Musk. He's 
basically an asshole to work for. Yeah, He's yeah. a really horrible guy. Yeah. But it's transcended that people don't seem to either know or care. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. It reminds us of a guy called Steve Jobs. <laughs> Bring to mind, right? And so for a lot of leaders um, and working with very senior executives of Fortune 10s, Fortune 15s around the world, um, unfortunately you see this quite a lot. There's a high correlation of what we call um, like peak performance from a management perspective and the technical term of being a dickhead, if that makes sense. Um, I think that is changing. More and more people understand that here's what you do and I think it's driven by, let's be nerdy, um, market factors in regards to employment, um, AI, the impact of future tech, shrinking workforces, large organizations becoming smaller organizations with more outsourced staff, all of those kinds of things. People now know that talent isn't enough. So here's talent and here's character. And you've met people whose talent has taken them to places where their character can't sustain them. Have you ever met people like that? Amazing, but they leave trails of human destruction behind them. So they might be like a bright burning star. Boof, great impact, early days, but it's unsustainable. So I think increasingly people are going into work knowing that character is as equally important, if not more important, in a conversation where technology will usurp the traditional role of people in the workplace. And so character has got to be a part of the conversation. But People, when they talk about people like um, Musk and Jobs, um, yes, the conversation is much bigger than them, but people will sometimes want to excuse um, otherwise unjustifiable behavior because of the results. Mm. I think that's coming to an end. And it's also something called uh, the appeal to the exceptional case. It's a cognitive bias. So you've all heard of like a friend who smokes cigarettes. There's not a conversation about cigarettes, so don't freak out. But um, you know, and you go, don't you know that they'll kill you? And they go, yes, but I have an aunt who smoked to 105 and she's just fine. It's the appeal to the exceptional case and you ignore the 99% of cases where that doesn't work out that way. So I look at Musk and I go, can you build a movement and be a challenging person to do business with? Yes, it's possible. Is it advisable? No, for the record. Yeah. What did you guys talk about? This is, I think this is the genius in Nike. Now, by the way, this is a conversation, so personal commentary. Are you guys cool with that? Um, so consider this like a, a huge dinner table and we're all just kind of sharing our thoughts. I love Nike as an organization. And the way that people have explained Nike to me in past, so friends in marketing at Adidas or Adidas, depending on what part of the world you're listening from, um, will describe Nike as the Saturn of planets and Jupiter of planets compared to like the moons that uh, floating around it, if that makes sense. Nike is enormous in comparison to other players in the market. Now, each, if you're looking as an alien observer and you go, wow, what do they do? Oh, they make sports goods, shoes and cool products, um, and people play sport in it. And one of their main advertising strategies is to sponsor elite athletes. But this is why I think Nike have transcended the products that they create and represent something more to people, which is kind of what we're getting into in this conversation. What does Nike represent to people? And then you start having conversations about what it is that they stand for. The easiest business manifestation of what it is that you stand for is a conversation of your vision, mission, values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does anybody know what Nike's mission value, mission value statement is? Yeah, just, just do it is their strap line. Right, but there's something that sits a little bit deeper that guides their decision making. Does anybody know that? Um, it is 
write it down because I think it's genius and it'll transform the way that you think about movements. Um, it is the authentic athletic experience. The authentic athletic experience. And you go, cool, Phil, thanks for the insight. I still have no idea what you're talking about. This is the genius, the authentic athletic experience. And then there's an asterisk on the word athletic. And in brackets underneath it says, if you have a body, you are an athlete. And that's the genius of Nike mainlining their products, if that makes sense. So if you think about a company like Adidas, does Adidas uh, sponsor elite sports people? Yes. Does Nike sponsor elite sports people? Yes. In their advertisements, do they both feature said elite athletes? Yes. But you think about Nike, it's about you. It's about me. It's about us. This is why I like to think of myself as a runner. So when I'm running in my Nike freeze and I've got my dry fit shorts on and I've got a Nike sweat wicking shirt that says talent isn't enough, I feel like I'm having an authentic athletic experience. But so does the person who only straps on their shoes once or twice a year. And that's their genius because in all of their messaging and advertising, if you think about it, yes, they've got like, you know, Kobe, LeBron James, Serena Williams in their ads. But if you really think about it, you go, huh. But they're only ever in that when they are in that with other kids. Think about all the Nike ads that come to mind when it's like a chubby kid running down the street or a kid jumping off a high diving board, or a bunch of school children who start playing a soccer game and morph into their favorite players and then go back. Does that make sense? Nike's genius and how they're mainlined is they've taken something that was really for elite athletes and made it for everybody. And I think that's the genius there. It brings to mind um, Harley Davidson's commentary. You've heard this, this is almost like a, an archetype. It's like a classic story now. Um, but the statement from a regional manager of Harley Davidson was that Harley Davidson doesn't make motorcycles. And everybody freaked out obviously because it's a heritage brand. They were making $6 billion worth of motorcycles at the time. This is a couple of years ago. And everyone's freaking out. This was shared at an annual general meeting. And they're like, what do you mean? Harley Davidson doesn't make motorcycles. He's like, no, 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 no. What Harley Davidson sells is the ability for an accountant to dress in black leather, ride through small towns and have people be afraid of him. <laughs> if you understand what your product is actually about, then you have the chance to transcend the product and become something more meaningful to people. Does that make sense? I mean, think about Red Bull. What does Red Bull stand for? Adventure, freedom, exploration. They sell sugary drinks with caffeine in it. It's hardly the stuff of peak performance. Does that make sense? Like you couldn't like drink that stuff all day and not have a heart attack in a couple of days. But somehow the product has come to represent a conversation that's so much bigger. That's when we're in movement area for brands. Questions, provocations? Yeah, no, and, and that's the truth. And so the question was, what about Adidas with NMD and new kind of like streetwear, if that makes sense, so athleisure. Um, yeah, 100%. Um, however, if you look at sales impact, Nike's still the beast. 100% still the beast. So is there opportunity in and around? Yes, and fledgling movements, but we'd need to be careful in regards to like demarcating in our thinking, what's the difference between a campaign and a movement? Something that lasts and changes the conversation and something that is a campaign that other people think is cool, if that makes sense. So is, yeah, a bunch of organizations that fit cool, useful, productive categories, but movements, um, and this is why this conversation needs to be had because we know that it exists, but when you try and pin it down, you're like, so what are the rules around it? 
what we've already talked about, I think, is a, a guiding framework that could be of use for people. Yeah. I personally, now this is personal belief territory, focus group of one. Um, you can build, yeah, absolutely. Um, a movement can be birthed on the back of an individual. And this is, um, for note-taking purposes, write the word alignment down. Um, and the way that I talk about alignment from a leadership perspective and representation of an organization, there can't be a distinguishment between the message and the messenger. So when you've got a leader of an organization living, talking, walking, acting like this, but this is what the organization stands for on the separate side of a, a page and there's a gap between the message and the messenger, either they're not gonna be the leader of the movement for very long, or it will be uh, a weak leadership profile or a weaker movement. Does that make sense? The stronger uh, the sense of alignment between the message and the messenger, the more powerful that person becomes the representation of the brand. But you know this, that currently, uh, you know, people die. That might change in our lifetime. And it's not a fire out conversation. There are a lot of conversations to suggest that people in this room, given enough money, might not have to die. So that might really, really change this conversation in regards to who gets to build the conversations that matter for the longest, if that makes sense. But maybe that's a chat for another day. For us, this conversation about can leaders, how important are leaders to the conversation? Um, I think less important now that we're having conversations about brands. But if you think historically in regards to archetypal movements, which were typically religious, the founder of the startup is also the teacher. So we're in new territory for brands, if that makes sense. Um, so let's check back in with each other in a couple of years. For now, um, it seems to be true that the tighter the alignment between the message and the messenger, the stronger the movement and the organization is. One last mix of the pot before we turn this recording off. Um, I mean, what we discuss is something that is positive because we talk about positive movement. We have. But it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Uh, and there was somebody that claimed that it's a movement, it's a movement, it's a movement. It was Trump. Yeah. So let's look at the filter of what we discussed. And Trump, mm. that fits quite well. You've got reframing the discussion, which is you reframe the idea of of the US. Yeah, I sure did. What does, what does the US stand for? Trying to. Yeah. Uh, trying to, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a question about mainframe, yeah, using Twitter uh, to sort of mainframe this, this idea mm. and do it directly. Yeah. And then, you know, playing the long game, I mean, it's still early, we don't know. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I was interested in taking the negative, taking a negative movement, at least from my point of view, yeah. and look at that in the context of, you know, what, what you discussed. And that fits quite well, maybe, maybe not the third one. Yeah. Yeah, um, ideas are pervasive things. Um, and with a loud enough voice, people can rally to it. This is why brands um, scramble for visibility, if that makes sense. Um, but you know that there's a difference between a crowd and a tribe. And a tribe and a movement is something that's different even still. I think without having to even comment on particular nationalistic ideologies or market-based paradigms. Um, I think the proof is in how long it lasts and how hotly it is contended. But does um, uh, that type of leader represent a movement at the moment? Yeah, it might be short-lived, but I agree. Just yeah. you were talking also about tipping 
going into detail personal yeah. experiences. I mean, there is a reality behind it, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the disindustrialization of the Middle West, yeah. uh, you know, the Rust Belt. Yeah. And you see that in the U.S., but you also see that elsewhere, in, yeah, elsewhere in the U.K. Absolutely right. Brexit. So it's not like it's uh, <laughs> emerging. There is tip, little tipping points, yeah. little personal experience that accumulating together creates mm. some frustration that it can exist and then freedom moves. Yeah. 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 The, the reason, the, the thing that I believe makes that more challenging because there's, would you guys agree that there are parts of the conversation where you're like, yep, yep, yep. And then there are parts of it where you're like, I'm not sure. Um, personally, um, I think the thing that makes it challenging is the, I, the idea of an idea in the middle of what's happening in the United States right now. Um, and if you've tracked um, Mr. Trump's conversations, um, you know that an idea is sometimes hard to come by. And sometimes that idea changes, if that makes sense. And so for all the conversations around Cambridge Analytics and the ability for Trump to uh, market to individuals based on their Facebook preferences. And so when people would challenge him in the press and say, Mr. Trump, um, it's hard to work out your position because he had 17,000 positions mm -hmm. based on people's splits in their Facebook profile. Does that make sense? Um, I, it's probably one of the more challenging things to get our heads around as to whether that's a movement or whether that's like a wave in the ocean that will get sucked back into the ocean and will move on to hopefully better times. Um, but yeah, that's big heady conversation. Big and heady. Um, what I want you to do, everybody got a pen. Can you write this down? And this will be the way that we finish up because I think the conversation of results can sometimes be like an interesting one that we need to kind of like, you know, scratch a little bit further on. Um, so what I want you to do is construct this model that I'll create in the air. Um, some of the guys up the back have seen this before and I find it incredibly useful. Um, you're gonna need space from left to right on your piece of paper, um, three chevrons across, if that makes sense, just to be, you know, celebrating our Microsoft fans. Um, so furthermore, to the left of page, can you write down the word intention? You might just wanna put a circle around it. Here's your intentions. Um, next to that, the center block, and we'll just, we'll just double click on this for a second because this could be a whole one hour conversation for another day. The second box is actions. Before we go further, the gap between intentions and actions from like a personal perspective uh, or from an organizational perspective, the gap between your intentions and your actions um, is the size of the dysfunction within that organization. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about ourselves too. Because I have a plan to eat healthy some days. Here's my intentions. But what is the thing that drives results? Is it my intentions, what I meant to do, what I planned to do, what I wanted to do, or what I hoped to do, or what I actually did? You see the problem there? So, as far as movements, ideas, political organizations are concerned, here's intentions, here's actions. Actions are the things that drive results. In the next box, do me a favor, um, put the word outcomes, but create enough space that you split that box in two because outcomes ain't outcomes, if that makes sense. Outcomes come in two parts, results and reputation. Results based outcomes and reputation based outcomes. I think from a personal perspective, because people are always a part of movements, if that makes sense, you have to see results or outcomes through the lens of that two part equation. Because yes, you might get short term results, if that means office um, 
number of voters, if that means funds in the kit, if that means users and traction for your platform. But the reputation over the long term is the thing that when you put those two things together will be the defining factor. I want to ask you the question, from an individual perspective, have you ever seen anybody get the results-based outcome and lose their reputation in the process? Have you ever seen sales managers do that? So we know that it, like, there's two separate parts here. Do me a favor, draw a dotted line now underneath the outcome box and just write the word impact, impact. And I think movements are built on the back of impact more than they are built on the back of short-term results, if that makes sense. You're like, man, I'm taking notes. Like, how do I draw a model, right? You'll have to take a snapshot of somebody else's picture in a second. So we've got intentions and actions, movements, tribes are built on the actions of individuals because intentions are all well and good but as the old saying goes the road to hell is lined with good intentions intentions actions are what drive outcomes but outcomes come in two parts results and reputation those two things combined and cycled over time and i want to put in brackets here see earlier conversation in regards to tipping points and touch points cycled over time the long play that's the impact of an organization, and then it has the potential to birth a movement. So as far as our recording is concerned today, we're gonna to call it there. And it's been an absolute pleasure to come and hang out with you guys at Work Club. I believe in this place, and I love you guys, and we'll see you around another time. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.